Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. I want to welcome everyone watching at home as well on our, our live stream and our YouTube channel. All right, well, are we ready in the back? All right. Shabbat Shalom. We're in a continuing series in the Gospel of Mark. Today is part 26. We're going to look today at the famous account of the Sadducees trying to trap Yeshua uh, with their mocking question about the afterlife uh, and levirate it marriage. So turn with me to Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. Mark 12, 18. And we have it on the overhead. Then the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to him with a question. Rabbi, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow uh, and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, all seven left, uh, also, all, in fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since all seven were married to her. I'm going to move this out of the way here. I apologize. All right. Yeshua replied, you're in error because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. When the dead rise, they'll neither marry nor be given in marriage. Rather, they'll be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising... Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Yitzhak, the God of Yaakov. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You're badly mistaken. In the last week of his life, uh, leading up to Passover, uh, the Last Supper, Yeshua, our Pesach lamb, rode into Jerusalem. And just like the Passover lambs were, were inspected for four days to make sure they were without spot or blemish, Yeshua is tested too uh, by four groups over four days. Here, he's tested by the Sadducees. And the Sadducees confront him over this issue, is there life beyond death? Is there an afterlife? And the Sadducees, like most modern secular people, were deeply skeptical about this. In the modern Western secular view uh, of the afterlife, it can be depicted by looking at this, uh, by analogy, looking at this terrifying story told by Franz Kafka in his novel, The Trial. Uh, in the story, uh, a man comes to the city uh, because he wanted to go before the law. He wanted to go before the bar of justice. He had a case to make. Uh, he had questions to ask. He wanted his day in court. He was directed to a building, and in that building, he was directed to a door. The door was slightly ajar. There was also a guard there guarding the door. And the guard told him, maybe later. You can't come in now. Uh, I'm the guard, and you can't come in yet. The guard pointed to a chair and directed the man to sit there. And he sat for hours, and he sat for hours, and he sat for days. And he sat there for weeks, and the guard wouldn't let him in, but the man wouldn't go home. 
because he came more and more to see that this is what he really wanted. He wanted to go before the law. He wanted to go before the bar of justice. And the glimmer of hope that he had that he would eventually somehow get in was what kept him there. He wouldn't leave. He wouldn't go anywhere else. This was what he wanted. This was what he needed. But the years began to go by, and the guard wouldn't let him in. And bit by bit, he lost all that he owned. Uh, he sent for all his wealth and all his possessions, and over time, he gave them to the guard, hoping to win his favor. Again and again, the guard took the gifts, but never let him in. The man kept saying, if I give this to you, will you let me in? And the guard would always say, well, I can't promise anything, as he took the gift. <laughs> and still, he would not let him in. Excuse me, music team. I'm sorry. These are in my way. <laughs> can't see half the audience. <laughs> and then the years go by, uh, and, and the years go by, and the man gets older and smaller and frailer. And finally, he realizes he's near the end of his life. Uh, his life is ebbing away. Uh, and as he's dying, he begins to see this radiance on the other side of the door. He realizes he's at the end and that he only has uh, like one breath left. And suddenly a question occurs to him. And he says to the guard, everybody wants to go before the law. Everybody wants to go before the bar of justice. So why, after all these years, am I the only one I've ever seen here? Why has no one else ever been here seeking admission? And the guard says, well, no one else could be admitted here because this door was built and made only for you. And now I'm going to shut it. And that's how the story ends. <laughs> Typical Kafka, <laughs> if you know anything about Franz Kafka. Uh, very enigmatic. And everyone always gets hung up on the details trying to figure out the meaning of this story. Uh, what does the door mean? Uh, what does the guard symbolize? Uh, what does the law represent? Instead of looking at the big picture, if you just stand back, you get the impact of the whole story, this terrifying story, and it's unmistakable and it's horrific. The message is that which is ultimately true and real may tease us, but is forever inaccessible to us. That which is ultimately real and true beyond the door, it may tease us, but it's ultimately inaccessible to us. That's Kafka's view of, of reality. But in contrast, great contrast, Yeshua's vision that he gives us here of what is beyond the door is utterly the opposite to that which uh, the modern, western, secular, uh, hopeless, hopeless vision uh, portrayed by, by here by Kafka. Totally the opposite. So let's look at what Yeshua actually does say about the afterlife, what's on the other side of the door. And if we carefully look at Yeshua's answer to the Sadducees, we're going to see, we got on the overhead already, you're ahead of me, but thank you. We're going to see uh, these three things. We're going to see that there's, a, number one, a rebuke. Number two, an argument. Number three, a promise. Let's first look at the rebuke, which is in verse 24, Mark 12, 24. You're in error, he says, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, it's important to know who these Sadducees are. We're told this in Mark 12, verse 18. The Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. The Sadducees were the opposite of the Pharisees. The Sadducees were worldly, uh, educated, uh, aristocratic, priestly families 
who inherited the priesthood and therefore had a guaranteed place in society of great status and honor and wealth and power. Uh, they were uh, aristocratic and educated. And although they believed in God, uh, they believed in a very stripped down, minimalist, non-supernatural version of God and Judaism. They believed only in the Torah, the five books of Moses, uh, as scripture. Uh, they did not accept the prophets or the writings as the word of God. They just believe in a stripped down ethical version of the faith. They said, the purpose of life is to be a good person. But they didn't believe there was a coming kingdom. They didn't believe in the coming of a Messiah who would, who would liberate people and set everything right. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in a future judgment day. I'll look at Acts 23 verse eight. We read this. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and there are neither angels nor spirits. But the Pharisees believed all these things. So the Sadducees had this stripped down, ethical, non-supernatural version of faith. The Pharisees were, were exactly the opposite. Uh, very moral, uh, traditionalists, uh, very religious, believed in all the scriptures, believed the judgment day and, and the resurrection and the coming of Messiah, the opposite of the Sadducees. So the Pharisees were, were moralistic conservatives. The Sadducees were relativistic liberals. The Pharisees appealed to the lower and middle classes. And the Sadducees' consistency was the, were the upper classes. So on the overhead, the Pharisees and their followers were conservative moralists. The Sadducees and their followers were liberal relativists. And they generally hated each other. Now, the Sadducees, who did not believe in the afterlife or in Judgment Day or Resurrection, they come to Yeshua and they confront him with a question. And the question is based off the laws of leveret marriage that are spelled out in the Torah, whereby if a man dies and his wife is childless, the man's brother must marry her and raise up children to his deceased brother to carry on the brother's ancestral inheritance in the tribal lands of Israel. We see an example of this uh, in the story of Judah and Tamar. We see a related concept in the book of Ruth. So the Sadducees begin their question by saying this, uh, Mark 12, verse 19. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring uh, to his brother. This provision that's found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, it was a very merciful provision to provide not only for the deceased brother, but also for the widow. In ancient, traditional, agrarian, patriarchal cultures, if a woman's husband dies and, and they, ha they have no children, she was typically left in a terrible situation. Uh, she could not just go out and get a job. She had no children to care for her. It was hard for a widow to find a new husband. And therefore, the Torah provided that if a man uh, leaving his wife childless, if a man died leaving his wife childless, his brother was to marry her, to provide for her, uh, to keep her in the family, to raise up offspring to his deceased brother. It was a very merciful way the Lord provided, uh, instituted to provide for widows. Now, with this background, the Sadducees, they posed this hypothetical question. Look at Mark 12, verse 20. Now, imagine... If there were seven brothers, the first one married and died, leaving, leaving without any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third, all the way down to the seventh. In fact, none of the seven left any children, 
And last of all, the woman dies too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since she was married to all seven. Now, this is a purely hypothetical question, and it's designed to make the afterlife look silly. It's designed to make the resurrection look absurd. Uh, so now they ask, since she had seven husbands, uh, whose wife will she be in heaven? Who will be her husband in the resurrection? Now, this is what I'm going to call a wedge question. Because it's designed uh, to put wedges between Yeshua and the people to make Yeshua look stupid and the afterlife look stupid. Because if Yeshua laughs along with them and says, yes, how absurd, then all the Bible-believing conservatives who do believe in the afterlife, they'll reject him. What if he tries to give some convoluted argument about which guy will be your husband, the sophisticated liberals uh, will laugh at him. So either way, he's going to be discredited. Uh, that's why it's a wedge question. It's designed to drive a wedge between Yeshua and the people. So let's see how Yeshua responds. And the first thing he does is he rebukes them. He just smacks them. <laughs> uh, in the parallel account in Matthew, he says this in Matthew 22, 29. You are in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Smack. <laughs> Yeshua says to the Sadducees, you're completely wrong in all your premises and assumptions and reasoning. He rebukes them. Now, what do we learn here? The Pharisees attacked Yeshua. The Pharisees hated Yeshua, but, but Yeshua was also attacked here by the Sadducees, uh, and he rebukes the Sadducees. Now, what does this mean that both sides, both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, are against Yeshua? Well, the gospel is not based on any human party or category. It's not a form of liberalism. It's not a form of conservatism. It's also, by the way, not something in the middle. The Pharisees attacked Yeshua because they thought he was a closet liberal Sadducee. <laughs> and the Sadducees attacked Yeshua because they thought he, he was a closet conservative Pharisee. But it wasn't because he was halfway in the middle. We need to see that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they both hated Yeshua. Now, what's the gospel? The gospel is that God is a God of justice. Sin and evil have inflicted great misery uh, on the, in the world, uh, and God is a God of justice, so we can't just wink at it and overlook it, overlook all of our sin and wickedness and rebellion. He hates oppression and evil and unrighteousness. But Yeshua has come as our substitute and satisfied God's justice. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we deserved to die. He paid the price we never could pay. Our sins were placed on him. He suffered the evil of God's wrath in our place. There's a divine justice before whom we all must stand. There's a bar of justice. And yet Yeshua has satisfied it so utterly that when you repent and when you turn from your sin and turn from yourself and turn to Yeshua and place your trust and your life in him, he, you are completely accepted by God. And brought into his family. Now the Sadducees and the Pharisees, both of that day and of this day and today, they can't stand the gospel. Because the gospel is neither a form of conservatism nor a form of liberalism. Because both historic forms, religion and license, tradition and relativism, they both hate the gospel. The Sadducees didn't believe there was a God of justice. 
They didn't believe in judgment day. They didn't believe in a God who punishes. But the Pharisees didn't believe that this God could be satisfied. But rather through our good works and our religiosity and our moral virtue, we had to do it. We had to satisfy the demands of God's righteousness. And therefore the Pharisees, when they listened to Yeshua, they thought that they smelled a liberal. And the Sadducees, when they heard Yeshua, when they saw him and heard him teach, they thought they smelled a conservative. But Yeshua is not halfway in the middle. He's not in the middle. Let me explain what I mean. The God of the Pharisees is demanding. But the true God, the God of the gospel, is actually more demanding. Uh, uh, because the God of the gospel has a justice that can't be satisfied by anyone but Yeshua. You cannot live up to his righteous standard. In that sense, the true God, the biblical God, is more conservative than the religious conservatives' God. And then we have the God of the, of the Sadducees, the God of, of the humanistic liberals. Their God was a purely loving God. Uh, the Sadducees said, we believe in a loving God, a God who accepts everyone. We don't believe in a God of wrath or judgment. But the true God, the biblical God, is actually more loving than the God of the Sadducees. Because the biblical God offered up his son. The God of the Bible suffered for you. The biblical God went to the cross as the ultimate show of his love. So the conservatives, when they heard the gospel, they thought they heard a liberal. And the liberals, when they heard the gospel, they thought they heard a conservative. But it wasn't because Yeshua was in the middle. Because the God of Yeshua was more conservative than the Pharisees' conservative God and more liberal than the Sadducees' liberal God, all at the same time. And until you see Yeshua rebuking both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, until you see him being attacked by both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you will misunderstand the gospel. Because you'll think the gospel is a particular form of human category, but it's not. Now, let's very briefly apply this before we move on. If you're a believer... Get used to being uh, misunderstood by both conservatives and liberals. You will be misunderstood. You know, when you first become a believer, you, you tend to assume the gospel affirms everything you've always believed in your, all your life. You know, if you're a liberal, you like the gospel's emphasis on helping the poor uh, and the marginalized and the powerless. And if you're a conservative, you like the gospel's, gospel's emphasis on moral virtue uh, and, and sexual purity uh, and justice uh, and wrath and guilt uh, and repentance. But the more you become like Yeshua, the more you'll see he transcends all these earthly categories. The gospel is not like any human category. And so non-believers are going to misunderstand you. you know, for example, in Eastern Europe under communism... The believers looked like liberals to the communist government because they were opposing the oppressive totalitarian communist state. They were against the state. They were championing the rights of the individuals. So they looked like liberals to the conservative communist government. But today in our Western secular world, we as believers tend to look like conservatives. Why? Because we stand up for the right to life uh, and biblical morality. Uh, and we oppose the radical uh, anti-family LBGTQ agenda uh, being imposed upon us. We say there's something more important than the individual demanding total freedom and unrestrained license. But the point is, believers in Eastern Europe under communism, or today in the West under secular humanism, 
Uh, we aren't trying to be liberal. We're not trying to be conservative. We're trying to be biblical. Both the conservative Pharisees and the liberal Sadducees opposed Yeshua. And it wasn't because he was somewhere in the middle, but because he was totally off the spectrum. So let's resist being, being pigeonholed into secular political categories because the gospel defies all human categories. Our goal is simply to be biblical. So in the overhead, number one, that's the rebuke. Now, number two, let's look at the argument. Having first rebuked them, now Yeshua shows the Sadducees why they're wrong about the afterlife. And Yeshua doesn't just rebuke them, but he tells them what their two mistakes are. So look at Mark 12, 24. Yeshua replied, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. So these are your two mistakes, Yeshua says. Number one, you misunderstand the scriptures. Number two, you underestimate the power of God. And then in verse 25, he explains how they underestimate the power of God. And in verses 26 and 27, how they misunderstand the scriptures. So let's look at this in reverse order. In verse 26 and 27... Yeshua shows the Sadducees how they misunderstand the scriptures. And he makes an incredible case for the reality of a future afterlife. And he does it, of course, by going to the Bible. So look at this. Look at Mark 12, 26. Mark 12, 26. Now, about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Yitzhak, the God of Yaakov. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. We're badly mistaken. Now, notice very carefully what Yeshua does here in quoting the scriptures. He does not go to Isaiah or Job or the Psalms or Daniel, even though all of these speak extensively about the resurrection. Why? Because the Sadducees don't accept the prophets or the writings as part of scripture. So what Yeshua does here is brilliant. He argues on the Sadducees' own terms by using only the Torah itself. Yeshua quotes Exodus 3, 6, where God appears to Moses in the burning bush. In fact, the Sadducees started their argument by citing Moses to the laws of leveret marriage. So Yeshua says, okay, let, let's talk about Moses. And he quotes Exodus 3, verse 6, which says this, I, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Yeshua then points out, and did you notice this? So notice something here. Look at the language and the verb tense. The Lord, in Exodus 3, 6, the Lord doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Lord speaks of the patriarchs in the present tense, and he speaks of his covenant relationship with them in the present tense, even though they've been dead for centuries. Now, we need to understand the significance of this terminology. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because this terminology has a lot of freight built into it. When God appears to Moses in the book of Exodus, he says, I want an intimate, personal, covenant relationship with you and the people of Israel. Now, of course, God already had a general relationship with them uh, as their creator and, and through the covenants with their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But now God says, I want a personal relationship with you, Moses, and the children of Israel. I want an intimate covenant relationship. And I want it so intimate and so covenantal and so personal that we can use possessive pronouns and prepositions with each other. 
Now, we have a parallel in English about when we do this. Uh, who do you talk about using possessive figures of speech, possessive pronouns and, and, and prepositions? For example, if you hear me refer to my Elizabeth or, or, or my Rachel, you're going to assume correctly that that's my wife uh, and my daughter. Because we don't talk about others using possessive language like that unless there's been a, a deep, voluntary, self-giving relationship, like a covenant bond between spouses, or unless it's, it's your child. Uh, we reserve use of possessive pronouns and, 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 and prepositions for close, personal, intimate relationships. Let's say you have a famous celebrity father, uh, a movie star. Let's say, I don't know, uh, John Wayne. And you're always introduced simply as, oh, there goes John Wayne's son, or there's John Wayne's daughter. Nobody even knows your name. <laughs> all the people say when they see you, when they see you, all they say is, there goes John Wayne's son or daughter. That's how you're always referred to. After a while, it starts to frustrate you, upset you a little bit. You say, I'm not just John Wayne's son, I'm David, or whatever your name is. Or, I'm not just John Wayne's daughter, I'm Rachel, or, or whatever your name is. <laughs> but notice the contrast here, that God doesn't have a problem being referred to in relation to somebody else. He's perfectly content to be known as Abraham's God, Isaac's God, Jacob's God. The Lord, the Lord comes and says, when we're in a covenantal relationship, we will, we'll be able to talk about each other like this. You are my people. I am your God. I'm the overhead. Now Yeshua says, when God enters into that kind of covenant relationship with you, that kind of love relationship with you, think of the implications. It means your relationship with the Lord can never go into the past tense. When you love someone, really love someone, the greatest horror and disappointment uh, and devastation you could ever have is for that relationship to go into the past tense. There's no one in the world who ever wants to say, I had a son. I had a daughter. You want to say, I have a son. Never, I had a son. You never want to say, I had a spouse. You never want to say, I had a friend. Because when you love someone, you don't want that relationship ever to go into the past tense. You don't want anything ever to come between you. You don't want anything to hinder or destroy the relationship. But you can't always control this uh, because we're just human beings and we're limited and we're flawed. But what if God himself loves you? What if the Lord of the universe loves you? What if Yeshua the Messiah is committed to you? What if the Lord is in a personal, possessive relationship with you? A voluntary, intimate, self-sacrificial, self-giving, covenant relationship with you. Whereby he has given himself fully to you. And you've given yourself wholly to him. What that means is this. God can never be the God of the dead. Do you see the force of this? God can't be the God of the dead because he's a covenant God. Uh, he's God. He can never be the God of the dead. God can never say, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob on the overhead. God, when he's speaking to Moses, 
talks about his relationship to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the present tense. Because when the Lord puts his love on you, when you enter into a covenant relationship with the Lord, that relationship can never go into the past tense. He will jealously guard that which is precious to him. Now, by the way, as a footnote, I'm not talking about whether you can voluntarily renounce and walk away from your relationship with God, whether you can lose your salvation. That's not the topic of today's drash. But I am saying this. The scriptures say that God will never leave you or forsake you and that no one can snatch you out of his hand and the overhead. You and I might be unfaithful, but God will never be unfaithful. His love is invincible. His love is deeper than the ocean. His love for you drove him to drink the cup of divine wrath and to be nailed to a cross. Now, if you can't bear to see your relationships go into the past tense, how much less so with God? And so Yeshua is saying here in this passage that his love for you makes you real, eternally real, absolutely solid and permanent. Speaking of becoming real, why do we love uh, the Pinocchio story so much? You know, you know by the way, I recommend the, the brand new version made in Italy last year. It's got incredible CGI effects. Uh, it came out, it's on, it's on uh, Amazon, great movie. I also recommend this older movie called uh, AI, Artificial Intelligence by Steven Spielberg. Uh, it's an older movie, which is a takeoff on the Pinocchio story. What's the Pinocchio story? You know, there's this talking, moving puppet. Uh, he's not real. But he says, if I could get somebody who is real to love me, it would make me real. Same for the little robot boy in the movie AI. Uh, he's not real, but he wants to be real. So he says, if I can get a real mother or father to love me, then I could become a real boy. Now, the 20th century existentialists uh, Kafka, Camus, Sartre, they said that very, very few people who claim to be secular or claim to be atheists really have the guts to live as if there really is no afterlife. They say, here you are, you claim to be a scientific, educated, sophisticated, secular, Western person, and you say, I don't believe in heaven and hell. I'm a sophisticated, modern, rational, enlightened person. I don't believe in the afterlife. And the existentialists say, well, if you really believe empirically that when you die, you rot, when the sun dies, everybody rots, and eventually there'll be nothing around and no one left to remember anything that ever happened, if you really don't believe in an afterlife, then everything in the universe is absurd. Nothing means anything. Nothing counts, nothing matters. People don't count. Moral ethics don't count. Everything is just a matter of opinion. Everything will eventually pass away. Nothing makes a difference. Now, we don't like the existentialists and their brutal honesty. On the one hand, they're right. On the other hand, they're wrong. We say, on the one hand, you're right. We're just passing away. We're ephemeral. Everything is just going up in smoke. We're like dust in the wind or, or waves upon the sand. It's all shadows and dust. And yet we say, nonetheless, I still feel deep down that something counts. Uh, I do feel people matter, and I can't shake that feeling. 
Well, in this passage, Yeshua is showing us how the Bible explains this conundrum. On the one hand, we know we're ephemeral. Uh, we know we're not real. We know we're passing away on the overhead. And yet we know there's somebody who is real. We know there is somebody who is eternal. And if he puts his love on us, we become permanent. We become real. We last forever. Because our relationship with him lasts forever. I will never pass away. I will never go to nothing. Do you see how Yeshua is arguing here? It's an amazing argument. And it's very different from the traditional hellfire and brimstone preaching. Because the traditional hellfire preaching goes like this. You know there's an afterlife. You know there's a heaven and there's a hell. And without the Lord, your afterlife is going to be hell. So you have a relationship with him. Commit your life to him or you'll burn. That's the old hellfire preaching. Uh, you know there's an afterlife, so get a relationship with God or else. But Yeshua's argument here, if you look at it, goes in the exact opposite direction. Look on the overhead. He's saying, get a relationship with God, and then you'll know there is an afterlife. Get into a relationship with God, and the moment his love begins to actually be sensed on your heart, you will know there is nothing that will ever interrupt this. You'll know it intuitively. You'll also know it uh, um, logically as well. Because if God loves me, at least as much, as, as much, much more than I love other human beings, then he doesn't want this love to ever stop. He doesn't want this love to ever fall into the past tense. God will never let this go. The old way was, you know there's an afterlife, so get a relationship with God. But Yeshua says, I've got a much better argument than that. Get a, go get a relationship with God, and then you'll know absolutely that there is an afterlife. Because God cannot be the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And so if he has a relationship with you, you will know that it will continue on and on and on well after your earthly death. Great argument. Powerful argument. But Yeshua's not done. Because not only does he give us this amazing argument for the resurrection and for the afterlife, on the basis of the love of God, amen, that God is the God of the living. But then lastly, number three on the overhead, finally, he gives us an amazing promise. He tells us something about what that afterlife will be like. It's tantalizing, but not like Kafka's vision is tantalizing. Yeshua is the ultimate guardian of the door. But unlike Kafka, he doesn't say, now I'm going to shut it. No. He says, the trouble with you Sadducees is that you don't know the power of God. You don't know the power of God. Mark 12, 24. Yeshua replied, you're in error because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. In the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage or be like the angels in heaven. Now, what is Yeshua saying? He's saying to the Sadducees, your premise is that, there, is that in the resurrection, there's going to be marriage. But there'll be no marriage. Now, this doesn't sound very exciting at first blush, does it? 
<laughs> it sounds like in heaven we'll all be friends. <laughs> you know, we'll just all be friends. We'll just all have these platonic relationships. Sounds kind of bland. <laughs> that cannot be the thrust of what he's saying. Because verse 24 says, you don't know the power of God. The Sadducees, thank you. Thank you very much. Sadducees, he says, your problem is you have no idea of the magnitude of the power of the transformation that God is going to bring upon us. So when Yeshua says in verse 25, there'll be no marriage in the resurrection, he can't mean that the future state will have less intense love than we have now. He cannot be implying that because he says, you don't know the power of God. Let me tell you about the power of God. In the resurrection, the love we have with one another and with the Lord, or let me put it better, the love we have with the Lord and all, all other lovers of God around his throne is going to make the greatest marital intimacy look like nothing by comparison. The greatest sense of closure and oneness in earthly marriage, when compared to the ecstasy and rapture of heaven, will seem like a dewdrop compared to an atomic bomb. Yeshua says the afterlife is a world of love, so incredibly powerful, it's going to subsume marriage. Not make it obsolete in the sense uh, that we're going to have something less than marriage. No. Our love lives will not be something less than marriage. Just the opposite. It's going to be so vastly beyond anything we've ever experienced here on earth. Now, does that mean we won't even know one another? Uh, we won't know our spouse in heaven? No. Look what Yeshua is talking about here. He says, the Lord is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Abraham is still Abraham. Isaac is still Isaac. Jacob is still Jacob. We'll still be ourselves. And yet there'll be also a depth of love and oneness and delight in one another and in him that makes the most rapturous moment of the best marriage in the history of the world look like nothing by comparison. That's the promise of the future that Yeshua gives us. Now, if you have teens, or remember when you were a teen, one of the frustrating things teens always say to their parents uh, is, I'm going out. And you as a parent say, uh, where? You know, isn't there a goal, a schedule, a destination? Where? No, just out. <laughs> How long? I don't know. <laughs> and for teens, or at least when I was growing up, when I was a teen... It didn't matter where we were going. All it matters, mattered was with whom we were going there with. When I said to my parents, we're going out, I meant we're going out. I just want to be with these people, my friends, relationships, love, friendship, fellowship. Who needs a destination when you're with the people you want to be with? Yeshua says heaven is a world of love. That's this amazing promise. Love even beyond marriage. Not below or less than marriage, but infinitely above and beyond it. And here's the icing on the cake and the overhead. At the resurrection, Yeshua says there'll be no more weddings. It's why? It's because every believer will already have had a spouse. No more single people. No more widowed people. 
No more divorced people because he is our bridegroom. Yeshua is our spouse. And he's the way in to the love and the closure and the oneness that we we will have with the Father and with everybody else. Because we're told this in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Messiah loved the holy congregation and gave himself up for her. Messiah loved you so much that he gave himself up for you. That's why God can put his love on you and make you real. Yeshua has paid the penalty on your behalf. Yeshua is your ultimate bridegroom. And therefore, he brings us into this eternal world of love. And finally, this amazing sense of the future that God has for you should now have a radical impact on how you live your life here. The first moment in the arms of Yeshua will make a hundred years of misery on earth look like just one night in a bad hotel, by comparison. (laughs) If you know the promises that Yeshua is giving you here in this passage, you'll be able to face anything, even when the hard times come. And yes, they are coming. Do not disregard the scriptures. Do not underestimate the power of God. Amen. God, stand and pray. The music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord, for the sure and certain hope of the afterlife that we have in you. Thank you that both the scriptures and the power of God, your power, Lord, assure us of the hope of the resurrection and the kingdom to come. For you are the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And they're still alive. In fact, they're more alive than ever in heaven, waiting for us to join them. For you, Yeshua, are the God of intimate, personal, covenant relationships with your people. For all those who call upon your name in faith and who follow you. For you promise us through the new covenant to be our God and that we will be your people. And because Yeshua, through the gospel, through the gospel, you are now in an intense, personal love relationship with us that assures us that our relationship with you can never go into the past tense. Hallelujah. Rather, it's always in the present tense. For you're not the God of the dead. You're the God of the living. (laughs) You're our God and we're your people. You, Lord, have given yourself fully to us. And Lord, we give ourselves fully to you. Yeshua, you are the guardian of the door, the door into God's eternal presence. And through your blood, you invite us in. You invite us in uh, to an ecstasy and an intimacy and a rapture uh, with you that no human relationship will ever compare to. You'll be our spouse. You, You are our bridegroom, God. For you, Yeshua, are the lover of our souls. And so we pray this in your name. Amen. Shabbat shalom.